Hi, Carla. Hi. Nice to see you. Very nice to see you today. How are you? Just fine. It's a beautiful day. And I hope it's a beautiful day for you as well. Yeah, it's actually sunny here. So uh, uh, yeah, and I hope the day gets even better uh, with our conversation. So uh, today my guest is Carla Hoffman. She's a professor in the Systems Engineering NOR department at George Mason University, GMU, where she served as chair for five years. Prior to her position at GMU, she worked as a mathematician in the Center for Applied Mathematics of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, where in 1984, she was awarded the Applied Research Award. Her other awards include George Mason's Distinguished Faculty Award, the Informs Fellows Award, the Informs George E. Kimball Medal, and the Informs Edelman Prize. Recently, she was inducted as a fellow of iForce. She served as president of Informs in 1999 and has also served on the executive committees of ORSA, iForce, and the Mathematical Programming Society. In addition, she has served on multiple editorial boards. Carla's primary areas of research are optimization and auction design and testing. Her research focuses on the development of new algorithms for solving complex problems arising in industry and government. She serves as a consultant to the FCC on spectrum auctions and has previously consulted to a variety of government agencies, including Department of Defense, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Internal Revenue Service, the Department of Transportation, and the Commerce Department. Her industrial consulting has been in dynamic and real-time routing and scheduling and in capital budgeting. Carla, thanks a lot for accepting the invitation. Uh, you have done a lot in your career and it's really an honor to have you here. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I look forward to the talk. Yeah, so let's start. Uh, Carla, you were born in 1948, uh, but where exactly? In Passaic, New Jersey, which is about eight miles outside of New York City. Okay. Uh, and where does your family originally come from? From Eastern Europe, primarily Lithuania, uh, area around Vilnius. Could you talk a bit about your parents? Um, my parents were both working people. They both had to overcome issues with education. My father was the eighth of child and um, turned 16 during the Depression, so he never completed high school, but ended up being a manager of quality control for IT&T um, without a high school degree. Um, my mother's father didn't believe that she should have a career, believed that she should stay at home and raise children. And so he wasn't willing to pay for her college. She always resented that. But the good news about all of this is that they taught me that education was important and that I should just follow my passion. And I'm very thankful to them for that. Right. And do you have siblings? 
I have one sister who is three years older than I, and she studied in, in college. She was a chemist and worked for as a chemist for a few years. And then she raised two children, my niece and nephew, who I adore and are very proud of. So it's a very happy family. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was life in Passaic during the 1950s and into the mid 60s? Well, it was an interesting it was an interesting time in this country. Um, first of all, I went to a private religious school for the first um, eight years of my education, and then went to high school at a public school where the entire city was integrated into a single public school. And that was wonderful because you really had a mixture of a variety of different ethnic groups and races. And it just taught me a lot that I didn't know when I went to this very, very small private school. It also was fun because the Shirelles were three years older than I and went to my high school and the acapella music in the halls of my high school were extraordinary. We also had great football team and we had, it was just a fun place to go to high school. Uh, that's excellent. Uh, we'll talk about your high school years uh, shortly. But before that, uh, other than going to school, how did you keep yourself busy? Um, I love music. I loved dance. I was, you know, I played on the streets of my city. So all of the normal things people do, roller skating, jump rope, bicycling, um, all of the normal things that a child does in high school mm -hmm. um, and in elementary school. Uh -huh. You mentioned uh, music. Uh, what was your musical taste back then? So I grew up in a great musical era. I mean, starting out with blues and then um, Motown, as I said, my high school was very much into Motown. And then, you know, I, in high school, the Beatles arrived and then the Rolling Stones. So there was just an extraordinary breath Uh, for that time, very, very new music. And I love that and just spent a lot of time listening to music, dancing, talking about music. I'd like to say singing, but I don't sing very well. Uh, you mentioned Montown. Uh, were you into like Supremes and Diana Ross? Uh, uh, absolutely. Aretha Franklin, the Supremes, Sam Cooke. Um, you know, it, it really varied. It was over a wide uh, breadth of music, but um, anything that was popular in that time, especially if it was more rhythm and blues and black music than white music. Mm. I was not into Elvis. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, did you enjoy reading? I love reading. I read everything I could find as a child. And to this day, I do lots of reading and it's very broad. 
Um, there was a time when I was reading every mystery. Now I'm reading an awful lot of nonfiction, and I'm finding nonfiction is more astounding than fiction. Um, so, but yes, I've always read, and the range of my reading is broad. I also get two pa two newspapers delivered, which is sort of an archaic thing this time, and have two other. You know, the New York Times is online, um, the New Yorker is online, but I also get a news, a true physical newspaper every day. Yeah. Old school, right? <laughs> old school. Very yeah. old school. Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, come back to your high school years. Did you do well in high school? I was a good student. I wasn't. A great student. There were enough. I think my transition from a very small and very parochial um, elementary school to high school meant that there were an uh, a very large number of things that I was interested in other than the classroom. Uh, okay. Uh, is it true you skipped classes to go to Broadway shows, for example? As, as I said, yeah, we were, I was eight miles outside of New York City. So regularly I would go into New York City on Sundays for the matinee. And sometimes if I could find that I could get tickets on a Wednesday afternoon, I would sneak out early to go to a Broadway show. At this point, I have three subscriptions to theater. Wow. So I do love theater, drama, musicals, the works. Uh-huh. Uh, is it also true that your relationship with mathematics was not very clear at a time? No. Um, as I said, my parochial school spent half the day in religious studies and half the day in all of the other studies. So I walked into high school with a really terrible math background. I had not seen pre-calculus. I had not seen applications of math. I knew how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide, basically. Um, and I walked into algebra and found it I was startled as to just how much I didn't know. And if it weren't for these outside interests of mine, I'm not sure how that would have developed. But after the first uh, grading period, I had not gotten a very good grade in math. And I find it humorous that my mother said, well, you don't really need to know math. And if it weren't for a boy I had a crush on, I might have believed that, but I'm a competitive person and I was going to show that I could do this. And then the second grading period, I was the only person to get an A in the class. I still hated the teacher, but it showed me that I could do math. And so I was sort of happy that the teacher sort of showed me that, even though our personalities were not in sync. So a crush actually enabled you to uh, study hard and uh, get better grades to the point of having the, the best grade in class. Yeah. 
it's just one of those things that you know life life isn't predictable ever right. yeah yeah um and uh how was the transition from high school to college well the transition from high school to college was easy in one sense um i really would have loved to have moved away farther but uh, my parents were lower middle class my father unfortunately had bought a business and then had to declare bankruptcy right before i went off to college So I went to Rutgers, which was a good university. It was the state university. What that meant, though, was that I had a full ride into college, and I still didn't know what I was going to do in college. Um, I assumed I would do something in math or science, but didn't really know what that would be, and had a great math teacher um, who really sort of redirected me to math from chemistry. Uh-huh. I was not a good lab chemist. <laughs> I'm a good cook because I wasn't a good lab chemist. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what were the range of classes uh, you took at, at a time? Well, that was the other thing, was I was still in this exploratory period And math is an interesting major in that it doesn't have labs, it doesn't have a lot of essays and all of that, and it requires 30 credits to get a degree in math. So it allowed me to explore philosophy, psychology, um, black history. I mean, I really just took a large breadth of courses and got a math degree, but still didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I mean, there was no question that I was pretty sure I didn't want a teaching career, but that was based on what I thought teaching was at the time. Um, And I definitely didn't want to just write somebody else's code. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do after graduation. Uh-huh. Did you have the chance to study OR during your undergrad? No, I took one course. There was the only course available was called Applied Math. And I learned things like transforms. But when you asked, well, why would you take this function and create it into this very long series? Um, I got the answer, well, engineers use that. That's what I got, not how an engineer ever used it for anything. I needed my doctoral program in queuing theory to teach me that. All right. Uh, you studied uh, at Hurtgers from uh, 1965 to 1969. Um, and in the late 60s, there was uh, turmoil in the U.S. with people protesting against racism, the Vietnam War, and so on. How did that affect you? Well, a lot. Um, first of all, um, I was not growing up in the north. I really didn't understand what was happening in the south of the country. And so the race riots really opened my eyes. And on campus, I was considered a leader 
And because of that, the university tried, gave us all of this information and explained how we shouldn't support the black organization of students that had closed, literally closed down the campus. Read all of this material, and I was on the black organization of students side of this issue. Um, and it just made me far more aware of that. There's also the Vietnam War that was going on, um, which had a lot of impact. It was when the draft was truly drafting people my age, many of which did not want to go to war in Vietnam for the reasons provided by the government. I was at Rutgers Newark at the time, and Rutgers Newark was burning not once, but twice. There were protests for the war in Vietnam, and there were protests for the racism. And so it was a real awakening politically of, of what was going on and how I could impact that or would be impacted by that. It should have been a tough period for sure, but uh, there were some positive outcomes from that experience, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, it, it made me politically aware and made me aware that I needed to remain politically aware for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and what did you do after graduating? So I didn't know what to do with mathematics career, and I'm not even sure how I learned about the field of actuary science, but it sounded interesting. And I took a job with an insurance company and intended to go through these 10 exams that would then certify somebody as an actuarian. And this is a pretty impressive field, um, and I have nothing negative to say about the field. I have a few things negative to say about being a woman hired into that field, which is that they never believed that women would take the five to eight years or however long it would take to get through these exams and have the experience to be certified in the field. And so I got, was given extraordinarily boring work. I was hired and three males were hired at the same time. They were all given more interesting work and more time to study for exams. I am happy only with that job, only because it sent me back to graduate school very, very quickly. And so I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So it must be time to go to school. I know how to do that. So what was the plan uh, after you left the company? So the plan was I applied to both business schools and math departments. I had a minor in economics undergraduate. I liked economics. Um, I also wasn't sure what people did with economics, but I liked it and I liked math. And business seemed like at least it might give me some direction toward a career. 
And so I applied to both. I did get accepted in Rutgers Math PhD program, but I also um, got a scholarship um, to get my master's degree at George Washington University in DC. And I had been to DC once for a protest and liked the city and thought, well, this will get me a broader view of the country. It'll get me a broader view of business. And I decided that that's what I was going to do. And so that's how I got to graduate school. I mean, my decision was based primarily on the fact that George Washington offered me more money than anybody else. I'm not saying that that's the proper way of making career decisions, but it worked for me. <laughs> and it also was a very strategic place, uh, especially at that time, right, to, to, to be. To be, yes. As I said, it was my political awakening. Um, and so Washington seemed like a good place to be. Uh -huh. Did you finally learn about OR during the MBA? Yes. Um, Jerry Bracken was professor at Yale University in OR and is a game theorist. And he was working in Washington because he's always done applied research for the Defense Department. And so he decided to teach a course at GW in the business school and used two books for that course, Saul Gass's Intro to Linear Programming and Piaco McCormick's um, Nonlinear Programming Book for a business school for the only course in OR. Probably for me, it was one of those lucky breaks. I loved the topic. I loved everything about it. Jerry was a wonderful mentor to me. Um, but having taught in business schools and engineering schools, I might do that in an engineering school. I wouldn't do it in the business <laughs> school. Right. But that was my introduction to OR. And it was also, he was the person who um, told me to think about a PhD and said that I should go to MIT for my PhD. I applied to both George Washington's engineering school and MIT's business school. Um, and he had explained to me, I had just read Fiaco McCormick's nonlinear optimization book, and they were arriving at GW at the time. So I listened to Jerry Bracken, and I'm very appreciative about everything about except where I should go to graduate school, because I did go to graduate school at GW and not at MIT. I'm sure I would have gotten a great education at <laughs> MIT, but I also was involved with the man that I have been married to now for 52 years. Um, and chose to get married and go to George Washington um, Engineering School. Yeah, we're going to get to that shortly. 
did you have to write a sort of a thesis to earn your the MBA degree? Yeah, that's that's a funny. Uh, there's a funny story associated with it, which is, as I said, I was a poor graduate student. GW paid for my graduate education, but not for summers. I needed summer employment. So I looked on the bulletin boards for job announcements. One said, um, looking for somebody um, in a master's program in psychology to do statistical analysis. I had three credits of psychology, intro to psychology, but I applied. I was hungry. And I remember the interview well to this day because this PhD psychologist um, interviews me, reads my resume and says, why are you here? And I said, as I've done my homework and I know that this department has three PhD psychologists, you need statistical analysis. Here I am. I can do the statistical analysis. You can do the psychology. I got that job and I could have either taken more six credits or written a thesis. And I wrote a thesis based on my work at the Internal Revenue Service, which was analysis correlating input factors that might be on a resume to success in the job. These were psychologists who were looking to improve the recruiting, you know, the successful recruiting of accountants primarily. Okay. Uh, so you uh, finally stayed in Washington for yes. uh, your PhD. It seems that you did not regret that decision. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and you got married during the early stages of your PhD, correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Carla, you started your PhD working on a game theory problem related to nuclear war, uh, but that was not really your cup of tea, right? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, the idea that the U.S. might lose, have less casualties and casualties meaning deaths, than the opponent when both sides in a nuclear war would see extraordinary devastation was just not what I wanted to work on. And my thesis advisor, Jim Falk, who was also a great mentor, said, well, I have these other problems you might want to consider working on. So it was a more theoretical and computational PhD on uh, concave minimization. Um, but yes, um, I do. My fir very first paper is on game theory and nonlinear maximum problems. So yes. Well, uh, as you said, you then uh, turn attention to non-convex optimization problems. Right, right. Primarily, and these problems were solved. And so the unusual thing about this is that we were, we wanted global solutions to non-convex problems. 
when you ask me about combinatorial optimization, that'll come back. But it was branching and bounding in a nonlinear way so that you would take underestimates of functions if they were concave and thereby be able to continually um, close the gap between feasible solutions and the estimation of the true solution. Uh, you got a couple of papers from that work and uh, you obviously had to code something. And uh, did you enjoy coding in those years? So I remember Jim Falk telling me that I was, actually it was for something that he had developed before then that um, he just wanted me to create a code. And I said, I don't know anything about coding. And he said, I don't care. I just need some problems solved using this method. And so I learned to code back in the days where there were punch cards. And you would put the punch cards in overnight and you would get the solution the next day. So one thing it did teach me to do was to code carefully. When I think back on it, the way in which I learned to code better than my first attempt was to read code of people who really knew how to code. And so for my dissertation, I needed a code, a linear optimization code that did something that linear optimization codes don't do, which is to pivot on infeasible points. But the algorithm required that I consider every neighboring point in the, uh, to a point in a polytope, I needed to consider all of its neighbors, whether they were feasible or not. And I was using for another problem, Roy Marston's XMP code. So I called Roy, who was a professor at MIT at the time. He didn't know me at all, but was willing to say, if you come up to MIT, we can work out how this code works. And I spent a weekend and I guess maybe four days at MIT, and he graciously gave up all of his time to create a code that did something that his that the simplex algorithm would never do. And he labeled the code Carla. Uh -huh. So you had this subroutine called Carla in Fortran. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I also would like to say that notice how this story is developing, that there really were important mentors at every turn of my career. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. I truly am very, very grateful for that. Yeah. And it's nice of you to give credit to, to all of them. Um, you finished your PhD in 1975 and you went for a postdoc at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, but you ended up staying there for nearly a decade, uh, working as a mathematician. Yes. And it was a wonderful place to work. Um, it was, the department was called the Operations Research Department, and it would get its projects 
from government agencies that didn't have a large OR staff. So we didn't get problems from the Defense Department, but we did get problems from the Department of Transportation, from the Energy Department, from a variety of places, including the ones that we couldn't ever say no to, were the ones where Congress asked NIST to be the arbitrator of, they were getting information from industry and information from a government agency, and they needed somebody to say, why were these answers so different? It was, it was just a wonderful, the people were, I worked with were so smart and creative. And there too, Alan Goldman was head of the department and also a wonderful mentor. Um, and so I worked at NIST for 10 years about and was commuting 40 miles each way from my house to NIST which says that this must have been a very good job, <laughs> and it was. Yeah. Uh, did you have the chance to attend any conference uh, up to that point? As I said, Alan Goldman was a great mentor. I wanted to give talks on my dissertation, but I hadn't submitted the abstracts in time to do that the first conference after I arrived at NIST. And Alan said, well, you'll just go to the conference and you'll learn how the conference works before you have to give a paper at the conference. And I think that sort of says something about the atmosphere at NIST. Right. I mean, so they mentored you uh, and probably gave you uh, very good advice on, on how to, you know, act in a conference and what uh, talks to attend and later how to prepare yours, probably. So it was a yes, school in a way for you too, in that regard. All of that. It, it, yes, it was. And similarly, how to handle a project where there really are conflicting goals and a variety of opinions and not, an, you know, I walked out of my education with a very black and white view of the world. You know, when you have textbook problems, there's always an answer. When you do consulting, there's multiple answers and you may optimize, but you're optimizing to only one goal. You might not know all the constraints. You might not describe all the constraints. Your objective function can be wrong from somebody else's perspective. The training I got at NIST helped me understand how to manage real problems. Yeah. So you went from black and white to the gray area uh, and you know more fuzzy uh, problems. And that, that should have been a nice experience for sure. And you worked on a large variety of problems during your time at NIST, including problems related to energy and queuing models, aviation, daylight savings, and so on. Could you walk us through some of them, perhaps your favorite ones? 
Okay, so one uh, comes to mind is certainly the energy work. Um, this did come to us from Congress because these were big um, models that were designed to determine where resources were, new deposits of oil and gas in the country, and how much it might cost to explore and develop these resources. And what was interesting about it is these codes had um, a lot of geology embedded in them and estimates of likelihood that there really would be these resources and likelihood that it would cost a certain amount to extract them. And I studied these models in depth. And I'm a little bit embarrassed, but it taught me something very important. And the answer that Congress needed was why were the models different? My assumption was it was, it was embedded deeply in the code. What I hadn't done to begin with was see what happened if you changed the parameters on the models. When you did that, it was very obvious out, which was the industry needed a certain rate of return on their investment. Congress thought the rate of return that they needed was much less than the industry did. And if you took the industry model and put the government's rate of return assumption into it, you would get exactly what you would expect. And similar, similarly, if you took Department of Energy's model and put the rate of return of the industry into that model, you would get the same. So you put the same parameter in both models and they will get the same answer. But in the meantime, I again learned things about coding because these were very complex, important models. The industry models were being used every day to determine production and exploration. Um, and so I learned something about coding and about numerical analysis, but I also, and something about geology, but I also learned test the parameters. So it was, it was good experience for me and it made it easy to answer the question to Congress, because Congress was trying to create incentives for the industry to explore. Another interesting example was daylight savings time. This one also came from Congress. And the question was, um, should you expand daylight savings time? Should you contract daylight saving time? Um, the area that of the country that is on the same time is relatively large in certain segments. And so there are, um, there are people at one end of the daylight savings time that might want to push back and people on the other end who might want it pushed forward. 
And it's a really complicated problem when you think about all of those who are impacted by it, from farmers to kids walking to school. The decision was to keep daylight savings time as it was, because otherwise more children would be walking to school in the dark. And what ended up being the decision-making goal was keeping young children safe, as opposed to lots of other goals that I heard during the discussion. Um, and there were just other problems. We did work for the IRS. I led that work because I had worked for the IRS before. And that problem related to facility location. Um, this was pre-internet days. So if somebody had questions, they either called the IRS on the telephone or they walked into offices. And one question was how many uh, staff, how much staff do you need right during the tax filing season in these answering centers? And the other question was where should their offices be? And again, part of the job was to figure out what the objective function should be. On locating offices, they thought it should reduce the cost to the IRS. I and the other people at the National Institute of Standards that were working on the problem thought we should worry about the customers and how easy it was for customers to get the service they needed, which meant that the offices should be located close to public transportation. So they were just great problems to work on. Yeah, they are all great problems. Sometimes uh, we study uh, some problems in which the objective function is really clear, uh, especially in academia. When you think about logistics and routing, it's, it's very clear. Uh, but then you were um, mentioning some situations where coming up with the objective function was not trivial at all. And, you know, there were, uh, you, you were given a problem. You have to figure it out your way to solve it, including how to decide an uh, interesting and uh, proper objective function so it reflects uh, what they actually wanted to. Well, I th and, and one of the things that we would regularly do is provide all parties with the solution you would get with the objective function that that group wanted and the objective function that other groups wanted so that they could see the impact of the decision globally as opposed to myopically. So there was a lot of back and forth until the solution was finally deployed. Right. Yeah. And that's what we miss in textbooks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Carla, up to that point, you had no experience working in combinatorial optimization. Uh, you then met the late Manfred Padberg in a conference, and you told him that branch and bound seemed pretty boring. Yeah, um, what I didn't know was all of the work on cutting planes and polyhedral theory. Um, and once I looked into what uh, Manfred was doing and others, 
I realized that, first of all, it wasn't so different in approach than what I did in my dissertation, because I really did create a um, alternative problem that might not be feasible, but better than optimal. And so you kept cutting these po this polyhedron down until it well approximated this feasible region and the objective function. That is exactly what was going on in combinatorial uh, polyhedral theory, but the methodology was completely different. The concept behind it was the same. I was fascinated with it and talked the National Institute of Standards uh, to have Manfred give a collection of talks there for the entire OR. I mean, I didn't think that this was going to result in our doing research. This was just my curiosity. And during the time that he spent at NIST teaching all of us about combinatorial um, optimization, um, we became friends and then we became um, research, you know, co-researchers. Wow. Uh, I asked you before uh, how the transition from high school to college was. Now I would like to ask you how was the transition from NIST to the George Mason University that happened somewhere in the mid 80s? Right. right. So um, as it happened, uh, while I was at NIST, remember I said that um, I had worked on problems for the IRS. One of those problems had a queuing theory component to it, which related to how many staff do you need to service um, people calling in to get tax information. And my queuing theory professor was Carl Harris. So I got Carl Harris involved in this problem. Um, a few years later, Carl is teaching at the University of Virginia, and his boss, his department chairman, was Andy Sage. Andy had just been offered the job of first dean of engineering for George Mason and called Carl and said, you live in, in Maryland, actually, not even in Virginia. Um, would you be willing to be chair of the systems engineering department? And then Carl called me and said, would you be willing to be the first person I hire in the systems engineering department? So that's how it began. And I will say George Mason was seven miles from my house as opposed to 40 miles to NIST as well as the fact that I had a young child and this 40, this one hour commute both each way uh, made me very nervous if something went wrong at home or that there was just a, a, an ice storm that I wouldn't be able to get back to where I needed to be. So I took the job um, and I also had the opportunity to discuss with Carl who else 
should be in this department. So we had a very nice beginning to this department. And the transition was easy. I thought I wouldn't, I thought that teaching wasn't a career I would want. I love teaching. I love the idea of walking into a classroom and having somebody just be turned on to the things that I'm passionate about. I loved mentoring. I loved everything about academia. I didn't know I would, but I did. Yeah, and you benefited a lot from your practical work at NIST. So you came really well prepared uh, to, to share the experience you acquired over the years. And yeah. And let me say that that actually helped my career in that for PhDs, I have been lucky in having PhDs who would walk in with a problem. In other words, it, I, they didn't walk in as the what I'll call the quote, normal PhD student who has only taken academic work and never had real world experience. Virtually all of my PhDs had real world experience. And so they knew what they wanted to do in a dissertation and I could just encourage them and help them and tell them what to read to get more background. But I didn't have to find their problems. And I think it's because I came with both an appreciation of practice and a curiosity of the real world. Yeah, awesome. Did you keep coding after leaving NIST? Yeah, I think um, the reason for Manfred Padberg and I working together um, had to do with the fact that I had a, a considerable amount of computational experience and he had the, he's the mathematical genius. So getting together meant that we each had something to offer each other. And I always, oh, and I always believe that one had to read and ha have somebody else look at the code that has been written. And Manfred was curious about coding as well as the mathematics. And so we had this team that worked together. And so, yes, I continued coding. Um, as a matter of fact, we were using um, XMP at the time. That was Roy Marston's code. And um, Bob Bixby worked, truly worked, to convince me that I should learn C as opposed to Fortran and use Cplex, which for those that might not even know it, the origin of the name, it was the simplex code written in C, a relatively new language when Bob was coding it. Um, and so, yes, and so Bob did um, encourage us to use version either zero or one of Cplex. 
and it made a difference to our ability to solve problems. And it impacted Bob Bixby's code, I believe, as well, because if you're doing set partitioning problems, which was the first problem I worked with Manfred on, they are highly degenerate. And one really needs to do dual simplex and really needs steepest edge dual simplex. And Bob heard that and Don uh, Goldfarb heard that and Don Goldfarb developed the steepest edge dual simplex that is in Cplex. So, yes, yeah. I think I had some impact on the Cplex code, but I didn't write any of that code. I want to make it clear that that really is Bob's genius. So, so that's a fantastic story you just shared. Uh, I, I'm sure uh, Bob Bixby will be very happy to, to, to hear that. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's something that had a lot of impact and Cplex became a highly successful solver, and it's been widely used uh, in the industry and also in academia. Carla, you kept on working on airline problems for a considerable amount of years. Uh, could you comment on your work regarding airport slot auction? Okay, so this combines two uh, pieces of my research um, in an interesting way um, and also has a story associated with how um, I ended up in auctions at all. Um, but what happened, so I did airline scheduling and that's really where I started with Manfred's work, because I always want to work on applied problems and have real world examples to work on applied problems. And so we did, Manfred had all of this research on polyhedral theory for set partitioning, airline scheduling problems are problems that fit into that. Thing, but we needed real-world problems. I called American Airlines and asked for problems. Actually, I called a number of airlines and asked for real-world problems. American Airlines provided our first test set. And then because we had some success with that, I also got problems from US Air, Northwestern, um, I'm, Delta um, did some work with Roy Marston on Delta problems, but there was this, this work um, that really taught me a lot about industry problems. So your question was airport slot auctions. After working on airline scheduling, um, I ended up meeting friends, clients of my husband's in communications. And they want, so they had been in the cable industry and wanted to get into the cellular wireless industry at the very, very beginning of wireless and asked 
me what I knew about game theory. To which I said, well, I've written a paper on game theory, but I don't think you mean game theory. I think you mean gaming. And they responded, no, we mean game theory because the Federal Communications Cellular um, manage, the management of cellular by the FCC had moved from first administrative, just they ruled you can have this license or not, to a lottery system, which was crazy because it didn't go to the people it needed to. It then just went to somebody who sold it to the people. And so the decision was that, why don't we listen to the economists and have an auction? And these people, um, who are good friends of ours, asked me, what do you know about game theory and how can we play the game that is being proposed in this auction. And so I wrote software for them to bid in one of the very first FCC auctions. And now we're gonna get back to Bob Bixby because I went to an INFORMS meeting and gave a talk on this, what I thought, relatively new idea for OR, which is usually we had manufacturing problems. And so um, we needed to determine quantity. In this case, you knew quantity and needed to determine price. And I thought that there were a number of situations where that could apply. I gave this talk, didn't think about it again, quite honestly. I mean, I, I didn't think about it again and went on to do other things. And I get a call from Bob Bixby saying, I heard your talk at an Informs meeting and we have just gotten the contract to provide a solver for a combinatorial auction being proposed by the FCC. And he said, and we at CPLEX don't have the consulting manpower to do it. You're in Washington, you know the FCC rules about this auction. Are you willing to be our consultant to the FCC? And I've been at the FCC ever since working on auction design. Now back to airline slots. At some point, George Donahue, who had been an administrator at the Federal Aviation Administration, um, is hired into George Mason and then moves from public policy to our systems engineering department when I was department chair. And George and I had many conversations over a lot of different things. And one of them was on slot allocation. So he said, you've worked on auctions, you've worked with the federal government, you know about aviation, could we do a slot auction? And he knew 
the secretary of the Department of Transportation. And also his background was in gaming, was in war games where people play against each other in a real simulated game. And that's what he wanted to do to prove to the industry that auctions were possible for allocating runway space, which is what these slots were. These slots were for takeoff and landing. In the U.S., the government allows one to schedule more takeoffs and landings than is physically possible. And so you get long queues at, you know, um, airports. And we did do this game, and it was great fun. It's probably the only time I have experienced the idea of bringing various parts of the industry into a single room to play a game to better understand decision-making. And I think it's still, we should be doing more of it. It really transforms an industry. So that's how I got into slot auctions. It was my aviation work. It was my work for the FCC on auctions. And it was George Donahue who just saw how to put these two things together. That's amazing. <laughs> Very nice to hear that story. A, yeah. Sorry for the long discussion, but there really was a connection between some of these two seemingly diverse research topics. No, come on, Carla. Uh, it's it's always fantastic to hear the stories, and some of them require some level of detail, so please don't be sorry about that. Uh, so let's move from airplanes to trucks. Tell me about your work on the dance of the 30-ton trucks. Okay. As I said... This is an exception in terms of my PhD student not walking into my office with a problem. How this problem came about was a consultant for this concrete company in Northern Virginia was at a plant and saw these concrete trucks in a very long line because there really were only two, the plant had two filling stations. This is where you fill a truck with concrete. And it's a relatively complicated process because there's lots of different kinds of concrete. But um, he thought he had taken an introduction to OR class in an MBA program and said, people told me about queuing theory, and this must be a queuing problem because there's these long lines. So he, this very creative consultant, calls Donald Gross of Gross and Harris, who is also in George Mason's department, and explains what the problem is. And Don talks to him for a certain period of time and says, your problem can't be fixed 
if you can't create more filling locations. Queuing determines how many servers and you have too few servers or you have, and, and the consultant said, well, that's not true. There aren't lines at every one of these plants. What really was going on was construction began closest to the District of Columbia, and then the suburbs kept moving out. But the plants didn't move with them, so they had these long lines at the plants that were very close to the city when the concrete was needed further out. So um, the question became two questions. One, where do you locate plants to make it more close to the customers? But also, wouldn't it make sense to use all of the plants, which means don't close the ones close to the city because you still need them. You just don't want long lines at the more distant plants and no lines where there are lines now. And so that's how the dance of the 30-ton trucks came about. Um, we asked the question of where should we locate facilities and would it be better to have trucks go from some plant to a, to a customer and then to another plant and then to a customer and so now it looks more like a transshipment problem. Um, and it's a scheduling problem. It's a transshipment problem. It's a facility location problem. It's a, and it's a scheduling of drive. When should drivers show up? And it's complicated because concrete cannot remain on trucks for more than two hours or it will harden, in which case you need either a jackhammer or dynamite to get the concrete out of the truck. And in the summer in DC, there are thunderstorms and then there are accidents there are there are a variety of things that make it highly stochastic. So it was a fun challenge. And as it happened, how we I was told about the problem from Don Gross. This doctoral student walked into my office, Martin Durbin. And I said, I've got an interesting problem. Are you interested? And he worked for a consulting firm that only did work for the Defense Department. And he said, I'll go back to the president and see if he's willing to take this on. And so that's how the problem was created. And it was a fun problem. Yeah, and there's a very nice paper published in operations research out of that uh, great work of yours. Uh, you were part of the team that won the highly prestigious Franz Adelman Award in 2018. What made you guys win the prize? Okay, so um, as I said, I started working for the FCC on auctions somewhere around 2000. And 
Evan Querell really was the chief economist who wanted to continue to push the limits of what the government could do that made sense economically. And I got there because of combinatorial auctions. Unfortunately, the FCC has still not had a combinatorial auction because the industry doesn't like the idea. It's too, um, they do have part of their auctions now are combinatorial, but not the essential part. But Evan always is creative and does ask interesting questions. And the question that was being asked was, there's a limited amount of radio frequency. And radio frequency is allocated for a variety of uses, okay? And so the 600, 700 megahertz area was being used for TV broadcasting. TV had gone from um, analog to digital and needed truly less frequency. Um, and when they went from analog to digital, they did lose some frequencies, but it was just sort of packing them easily into available smaller space. Now the question was, given that the country has changed and a lot of people were getting their information, streaming, web, a variety of things, so TV stations there may not need to have as many TV stations as there were. And could you make it optional for TV broadcasters to uh, do one of two things? Either stay on the air, but they would be packed into a smaller amount of frequency, but they would still have the same amount of frequency that they had had previously, which was six megahertz of frequency. Um, share frequency with another TV station so that since you can get two high definition broadcasts on digital in six megahertz, maybe it made sense for them to share a single, what we call license and everything they want but the FCC gets six megahertz back to sell to the wireless industry. And the third thing is they could go off the air and be paid to go off the air. They could be also paid for sharing, but clearly that would be less than going off the air. But the FCC didn't know how much any of these things, we didn't know how to price going off the air or um, sharing spectrum. So then, and we didn't know how much we could recover to pay the TV stations to do this by selling the spectrum to the wireless industry. So now we have a two-part auction. You ask the TV stations, are you willing to go off the air and you do an auction for that and you get a total amount that you need and you go to the 
um, cellular industry and say, we have this much spectrum to sell to you. How much are you willing to pay for it? And it, it went back and forth between these two auctions until you finally got an amount where the amount you got at least as much from the wireless industry as you needed for the TV. And this had a variety of optimization problems associated with it. And so it was a very fun time. There were an awful lot of people involved in the entire effort. If you look at the picture at the Edelman Award, there's an awful lot of people on that stage, every single person. It really, they did an enormous amount of work to get this job done. And Paul Milgram won the Nobel Prize for his auction design of that auction. So it wasn't only the OR community that understood how important it was. It was the economics community that also understood the importance of that auction. And if I ever want to say um, anything about all the people who have mentored me and who I have loved working with, Evan Quirrell is very high on that list because he just is so creative and understands what's possible as well as what's perfect. Excellent. Uh, the story itself is remarkable. And, and also you're um, giving credit to, to a person that played a pivotal role in that work. So, so that's, that's great. Carla, you work on many real life or problems uh, throughout your career. I would like to hear your take on real life optimization problems. Okay. So I think the world again is always changing. And so there will always be need for our expertise. What I find truly fascinating right now is real time optimization. When you're doing planning, You just need to get the averages right and maybe some understand and some understanding about the variance. But when you're doing real time optimization, you have to take into consideration not just that you need 10 people doing this kind of work. You need to know that each of these people that have been assigned that day didn't get sick didn't take a break when you didn't expect them to, didn't have something else, didn't have a truck breakdown. So in the concrete, we were doing real-time rescheduling because trucks do break down, because the industry isn't as good at predicting how, uh, what the spacing should be between one truck delivering concrete and the next truck arriving and delivering concrete. Um, if we think about how we use optimization today, people don't think about how it is that Amazon gets our packages to us when we need them. They don't think about how we have real-time 
delivery of meals, and we want that accurate to within 10 minutes. We're not going to be happy if our pizza is an hour late. Um, so this is a very different problem. And I and people ask why it is I don't really spend time worrying about the stochastic optimization view of all what's in the literature. For planning, I do. For real-time scheduling, I don't know what distribution. I don't know what's going wrong. I know it'll matter. And I know that we can re-optimize very quickly. What I mean by that is you've got a big problem. The entire delivery, say a Grubhub delivery service for a city. But when something goes wrong, say you're looking at New York City, in Brooklyn, it's not impacting the deliveries in Manhattan. So you can solve much smaller problems. It's also true that certain drivers are already assigned and not available. So you can fix most of the problem, have a small problem, re-optimize conceivably even to optimality in milliseconds as opposed to hours for the planning problem. And I think this is a very exciting area. Nobody's going to think of it as optimization, but the people behind the scenes have to, in the same way that most people don't think of a shortest path problem, when they ask Google Maps to route them to wherever they're going. They just expect an answer, and they expect it at least in less than a second. You know, you get a little nervous when that circle starts going around mm -hmm. and it says recalculating. Mm -hmm. So we have to be cognizant of what is needed. And in this case, you can't let the need for proving optimality stop you from doing what needs to be done quickly. But I think there's lots and lots of applications for OR as we move to this super fast computing in the cloud. Right. So you're saying that it might be more advisable to solve, uh, let's say, sub problems, the local problems, uh, over time as uh, the events uh, happen, instead of trying to derive sophisticated models. Sometimes you don't even know the distribution, so to come up with some stochastic approach can be uh, hard uh, in practice. Well, I think. The reason for doing that careful planning problem is it gives you enough slack or personnel or whatever might be constraining the problem so that when the, the real, you know, uh, routing happens or scheduling happens and something goes wrong, there's a way out of the problem. There's a way to resolve the problem so it's at least feasible 
may not be optimal, but at least it's feasible and it's probably very good. So I'm not arguing against one or the other. I'm arguing for both. No matter what, every industry in their planning stage has to think of it either as some stochastic problem that provides them with the flexibility to change in real time. But in the real time scheduling, at least you've got to provide a feasible schedule. And very often, because it's so localized, you can re-optimize to true optimality. Right. Um, so now let's change topics. Uh, let's talk about your long-term involvement with Informs. Uh, when did it start and what can you tell about your term as Informs president in the late 90s? Okay. So um, as we discussed, my first meetings really were um, learning about how to navigate, even though at that point it was an Orsa-Tims meeting and they were much smaller than these huge informs meetings, understanding how to navigate a meeting is important. And I remember it was either the first or the second meeting that I attended. Um, one of my colleagues, Rick Jackson, said, we're about to form a computing section of ORSA. Why don't you come to this meeting where we try to figure this out? And I said, I don't really, at that point, I really hadn't felt comfortable with my computing skills. And I thought, I don't know that I really belong. And he looked at me and he said, we're getting dinner afterwards. Do you want dinner or not? <laughs> So that's where I started doing, you know, and I realized that there really were things that I cared about that this group cared about. And so I got involved in this section as well as get involved in a equivalent organization for the Math Programming Society called Committee on Algorithms. And I was involved in both of these things and then uh, became, um, I don't know if it was called chairman or president of the computing section. It was a small section at that point. And met Judy Liebman. Judy, unfortunately, died this July. She was another one of those mentors who said, you really understand how important these sections are, these communities are. Would you be interested in being part of the larger committee that oversees all of ORSA's sections? And so I got involved in that. And then I got in, and then both Don Gross and Carl Harris were on the board of Orsa, and so I learned more about that, and it just seemed to escalate. <laughs> um, and but I loved it. I mean, I loved. I became passionate about the importance of community, the importance of professional societies, the ability to grow a career by just 
meeting people and learning about topics that you didn't know about that seem important. That just, and so that's how I got involved in first. So first I was treasurer of ORSA and then was on, then became vice president of finance for Informs and then became president. Wow. It's a long trajectory. And, and as president, uh, what are, are your memories from that period and what did you do in your term? Uh, well, you know, it was a period of transition. And I had hoped, as did most of the people involved in this reorganization into Informs, that we would do something that unfortunately we haven't yet done. And that is unite the undergraduates and the graduates, the PhDs, the academics, the practitioners, everybody who does, whatever you'd like to call it, whether you want to call it operations research or management science or decision science or analytics, or I could go on and on with the terms we have chosen. Couldn't we all just become one much larger group and learn from each other and have a bigger voice and a bigger presence to industry and government in terms of solving real world problems using mathematics, analytics, OR, all of that. That was our goal. We, uh, the constitution of INFORMS does look like the constitution of IEEE, which was successful at joining lots of different components of electrical engineering and all of its offshoots. I still would hope that IISE and INFORMS at some point merge and also grow. But while I was there, our job was to just transition so that these two organizations that always seem to be fighting each other worked well. I think Informs has done that well and expanded its identity into analytics, but I think there's a long way to go. Right. You were the first female president of Informs, correct? Right. And Judy Liebman, the person who mentored me into administration for the profession, was the first and only, uh, was the only um, president of ORSA, and there were no female presidents of TINs. Uh. So... Um, I think there is something in, the, in that statement that says, if you can't think it, you can't do it. And so diversity is a very, very important issue, I think, for our societies. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Carla, you have just retired, uh, but you seem to be quite active. Uh, what are your plans for the years to come? Um, I hope to be lucky enough to 
continue working on projects and doing consulting on interesting problems. I don't want to ever lose that curiosity or that um, interest in just fixing things. I, I'm very, I'm not only an optimizer, but I'm an optimist. I believe the world can get better all the time. And I just love hearing what's happening. I am fascinated with how our profession is moving into not only healthcare field, but the medical field, the pharmaceuticals, the development of new drugs and new ability to cure people. So I think if I were starting out now, that's where I would be looking to do research. But I hope I have a number of years to go where I can still be passionate about important problems. Uh Anand, up to now, we've really been talking about my professional life and my perspective. But I, when I think about making major life decisions, I really do try to use the same tools we use in OR to help decision makers make good decisions. The skills include curiosity, empathy, logical analysis, and an understanding of a variety of perspectives. Um, I have had a supportive family during very critical times. My husband has supported and encouraged me to take on new challenges throughout my career and to help me think about the alternatives and what they might mean both for my career and for our family. As I begin the next stage of my life, I hope it's gonna be equally rewarding and fun, engaging with family, with friends, and hopefully still doing some fun research. And do you have any regrets? Any regrets? No, I'm not somebody who looks back. I, this is my optimism talking. I, you know, I would say that my career took a bunch of different directions that I wouldn't have predicted before they happened, but just being open to trying something. And I hope I never lose that. Yeah. Uh, Carla, as a role model in our field, uh, would you like to leave a final message to our viewers and listeners, especially the youngsters? Yeah, follow your passion. Um, That sometimes it's not conceivable that you can really make a difference. And I believe anybody who believes in what they're doing can figure out a way to make the world better. So, and also to find communities that think the way you do so that you have a home and people to talk to and then just let things happen. They will. Yeah, that's a very good uh, piece of message. Uh, straight to the point, yet very inspiring. Uh, Thank you. 
Carla, it was lovely to talk to you. Uh, I had a lot of fun and I enjoyed listening to all these fantastic stories of yours. So thanks a lot. Anand, thank you for forcing me to reflect on my experience and move forward with an added sense of fulfillment and excitement. So uh, it was great to meet you in Santiago uh, in, in July, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you again uh, in the coming years. So uh, I hope you stay active. Uh, you're really in shape. I, I, I'm sure the, a lot of people will be asking you how you keep that very beautiful hair of yours. So uh, just uh, take care. And, uh, and if you want to visit Brazil, just drop me a line and we'll be happy to I'll be happy to help you somehow. Well, I'd love first of all, I'd love to visit Brazil. This is the idea of saying take opportunities when they arise and that's one I'm going to take you up on. This has been fun and I want to thank you for doing these interviews. They are I think very very important to the community. And I've loved watching many of them, and I look forward to watching more of them in the future. Yeah, I hope to be active uh, in, in the years to come and, and try to, to have a, a variety of casts uh, that can keep on inspiring the younger generation and provide uh, interesting insights on our uh, area, right? So once again, Carla, thank you so much. Uh, muito obrigado and, and take care bye, tchau bye